Oh, wow. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, I, I'm Dave Moore, and uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was part of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, now Menlo Church, an eco congregation. I went to college at UC San Diego, so it mean I had to suffer for Jesus for four years in La Jolla. Uh, and, <laughs> and then I went to Fuller Seminary. Uh, but then my entire professional ministry has been in the Midwest. So I was uh, for eight and a half years in Platte, South Dakota, uh, two-church parish. And then I was a church planter in Kansas City for 23 years. Um, and then I was an executive pastor in Oklahoma for four years. And so I've had some other roles as well. So I was in town, and I was invited to preach today because uh, I'm, I'm here visiting my sisters. And I think, it's, uh, I think it's also because Curtis knew that he or Brian would have to address the execution of John the Baptist. I think that's why Curtis left. <laughs> and I think that's why Brian didn't want this task. <laughs> okay? And so... Uh, so seriously, though, I, I really wanted to say something uh, important before I get started. Uh, Curtis becoming the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Houston, one of the largest of ECOS congregations, says a lot about Curtis. But it says a lot about you. It says a lot about you. Um, you loved Curtis well. You helped him to grow and, and develop. His, you responded to his leadership you rallied around him, um, and, and one of the reasons Curtis is where he is today is because of you, and I don't want you to forget that. Don't ever forget that, because this congregation has a lot to offer, and you've shown that in the way you rallied around Curtis, okay? So now, let's read the scripture passage for this morning. It's from Mark chapter 6. Uh, verses 14 through 29, I'm using the New International Version, and, uh, and this is the execution of John the Baptist, okay? So King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. Others said, he's Elijah, and still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, uh, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So finally, an opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, 
I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. And he presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I believe in the sovereignty of God, so I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But just for a minute, right? Think this through with me. Have you ever had something go incredibly well that was due to circumstances beyond your control? Okay? Now, I know some of you have a terrible problem with acknowledging that things are ever out of your control. <laughs> okay? Uh, you you uh, may plan every minute of every day. You may never invest a single cent without researching, and some of you have been incredibly successful by doing so. At the same time, uh, my son was driving on Interstate 35 from Kansas City, heading for the PGA Championship in Minnesota in 2009. And suddenly, a driver was coming in his direction, going the wrong way on the interstate. Now, fortunately, the driver was going about 20 miles an hour. And my son and quite a few others escaped injury or death. That was something unexpected and due to circumstances beyond my son's control. But I'm guessing most of us, right, have a story that started out positive and ended up positive due to circumstances beyond our control. My brother, uh, who was 12 years older than I, uh, took me to the baseball game at Candlestick Park where Willie Mays got his 3,000th hit. Now, they gave a ball to kids under 14. I was 11. I knew where Willie Mays lived. I walked a mile to his house, and I waited. I waited, and I waited for three hours, right? And finally, a pink Lincoln Continental with the license plate, Say Hey, came down the street. Willie Mays signed my baseball. And I still have it. And I was a kid, right? So I didn't ask him to date it. <laughs> but wow, think about everything I couldn't control. He could have stayed out all night. He could have just, you know, decided not to come home and just celebrate. But he did. So now, have you ever had something go incredibly poorly that was due to circumstances? beyond your control. So we had something last night. Our catalytic converter got stolen from our car. <laughs> okay, so, and, and there's some other things that have been really more difficult. My, I lost my brother to brain cancer in 2005, 2008. We don't know how he got it, but he got it. A multiform glioblastoma. 
Some of you have lost a house to fire. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost property to circumstances that were beyond your control. Uh, there's a family in Piedmont, Oklahoma, near where I lived in Edmond. And uh, they, they were celebrating New Year's Eve 2022, January 30, uh, January, December 31st, 2022. And so they had fireworks for midnight, okay? They shot off some fireworks, and one of the fireworks came down into the box of fireworks, all right? That's how random is that? The box was near the car, and the car was set on fire. The car was near the house, and the house burned to the ground. Now, I want to just be honest with you here. I, 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 I've been around fireworks before, and I haven't always acted wisely. So let's give these folks some breaks, right? You know, I mean, I always say you, you can take the boy out of junior high, but you can't take the junior high out of the boy, right? So, you know, some of you are struggling with addictions that feel out of your control. You know, maybe you're addicted to alcohol or, or drugs or sex or porn or something else. You feel out of control and you're not sure what's going to happen next. Now, as Presbyterians and Eco, we do not ask people to believe everything that we believe. We do ask some very specific questions when we receive a new member or we baptize an infant or an adult. We ask the parents of the child to be baptized or the adult or the new member, do you renounce evil and its power in the world? Do you repent of your sin? Do you place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Will you be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? Will you be a faithful member of this congregation? Now, at the same time, we allow people to connect with us and to experience our fellowship and worship. In other words, we allow people to belong before they believe. In other words, we don't require a person to be here to believe everything we believe. And that's amazingly refreshing in a polarized society. Now, if you become an elder or a deacon, we ask you to endorse the essential tenets of ECO, the key beliefs we share together. And among those essential tenets, you'll find uh, God's word, the authority for our confession, the Trinity, one God in three persons, the incarnation, Jesus, fully human and fully God. You'll read about God's grace in Christ You'll read that we are elected for salvation and for service. You'll read about covenant life in the church. And you'll read about faithful stewardship of all life. You'll read about living in obedience to the word of God. And in the essential tenets, you'll read these words. God has no need of anyone or anything beyond himself. Yet in grace, this triune God is the one creator of all things. The ongoing act of creation is further manifested in God's gracious sovereignty and providence, maintaining his existence of the world and all living creatures for the sake of his own glory. Now think about those words, sovereignty 
and providence for a moment. The word sovereignty emphasizes God's rule in three areas, creation, human history, and redemption. God is sovereign, completely in control. The providence is like sovereignty, and in the essential tenets of eco, we find those words together. The word providence means to take thought for, or to look ahead. God alone can look ahead, and God alone embraces all human activity. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4 and verse 16 put it this way. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. In verse, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, do you believe that? I mean, Christians have struggled with that concept over the years. All, all the days of, were written God's book before one of them came to be. Doesn't that make me like a puppet? Right? I mean, if everything was predetermined before I was born, you know, what am I? I'm, you know, how do I discover my soul, my essence, my unique gifts? Where's my individuality? Which is a big thing in this culture. <laughs> These are great mysteries of faith. On the other hand, if, if people take a position where God is not in control, doesn't that create problems as well? You know, doesn't, doesn't that mean there are situations over which God has no power? People in the Reformed tradition of the faith have tended to, toward more of an emphasis on sovereignty and providence. People of other traditions of faith have in some cases drifted toward more of an open theism, the idea that God does not know. Now, we always want to let what unites us, Jesus, be more than what divides us. But while I lean towards sovereignty and providence, that doesn't mean I don't have questions. <laughs> in other words, God controls all things, including the death of John the Baptist. Which brings us to our text for this morning. Now, so before the events of verses 14 through 29, we encounter the story of Jesus in his hometown, the distrust, the animosity of the residents of Nazareth to his teaching. And here Jesus speaks these profound words in Mark chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Uh, one of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately. He uses the word 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is always moving from one thing to something else. We get a feel for this in Mark 6. Jesus is rejected by his hometown, and that's why he sets up shop in Peter's family compound in Capernaum. Okay? He immediately sends out the 12 disciples in pairs to represent him. And then comes the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Then he feeds 5,000 men, not to mention women and children. Then he walks on water. The Herod in this passage is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who died in, in 4 BC. Herod Antipas, his two brothers and one sister, 
were given different pieces of the kingdom. So Herod Archelaus ruled Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. Herod Antipas ruled Galilee and Perea. Philip ruled the territories north and east of the Jordan River. And Salome I ruled the cities of Jabna, Ashdod, and Phacelus. So Herod Antipas, Antipas also convinced his wife to divorce her husband, Philip, Herod's half-brother, from one of Herod's ten wives. This is a twisted family tree. And to marry him. So because Jesus was primarily active in the region of the Galilee, Herod certainly became aware of Jesus' activity. And because John the Baptist had deeply criticized the divorce to Philip and the marriage to Herod Antipas, this sets up the rage of Herodias, which leads to the events that unfolded in the story we read from Scripture. So there are three things that I want to say about this passage today, okay? The first thing is that um, I'm going to outline them, and then I'll come back into each one in detail, all right? So... The first part is that when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. Okay, that's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The second thing is that we are coming to the end of Christendom, if it's not here already. And the third thing is that this is an incredible opportunity for the church. Okay, so let me talk about each one of those. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This was the message in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, uh, which the actual title of the book in German was Nachfolge, or The Act of Following. The book is based on an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount and was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was among the leaders of the confessing church in Germany who opposed the plans of Hitler and the other churches in the country that simply allowed Hitler to do whatever Hitler wanted to do. Bonhoeffer actually participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler that was unsuccessful, and he was uh, interned at Flossenburg and executed just days before the American troops liberated the camp. So we should expect that followers of Jesus would die or would suffer in other ways including John the Baptist. In Hebrews 11, what some people call the hall of fame of faith, we read these words in Hebrews 11:36 through 38. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes of, in the ground. Now, yeah, i got to tell you something. In, in the United States of America, we are not really being persecuted. My, my sense is we're being annoyed right now. I mean, 900 churches burned to the ground in Indonesia, that's persecution. Um, the, the church in Iran, which is, uh, has no buildings, is heavily persecuted and is almost entirely led by women, um, is the fastest growing church in the world right now. Okay? 
And you can, uh, if you want to look up something, uh, go to YouTube and look up the, the movie Sheep Among Wolves about the church in Iran. Absolutely fascinating, okay? Um, so, you know, think about, think about that. I, I, I mean, I, you know, when we talk about this, the, the, the power of the first 300 or so years of Christianity was that God was producing love and good deeds in us. What grew in us through God's spirit also produced love and good deeds here in this church. Not because we're trying to earn God's favor, but because God's favor has been given to us. We respond out of gratitude, not guilt. That's the three major themes of the Heidelberg Catechism. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. We love others because Jesus loved us when we didn't deserve it. Did a family abandon a baby in the first 300 years? The Christians took the child in. Did people reject women? Christians received them. Was there a plague? Christians walked in when others walked out, willing to die to love and serve others in their time of need. Now, you know, where is that kind of challenge for us as a church today? Gerhard, uh, Gerhardus Voss at Princeton Seminary in the early 20th century coined the term the already but not yet. Now, George Eldon Ladd at Fuller further developed the term. Already means that God's kingdom has begun to move in our midst. Anytime someone does love, does justice, or, or loves kindness, or walks humbly with God, that's an example. When you serve your neighbors, when you love one of the least of these, those are examples. Not yet means that there's still suffering in the world. We struggle with pain, with hurt, with despair, with depression, with anxiety, especially in these last few years of the pandemic. We wonder why Russia attacked Ukraine. We wonder about the polarized politics of our country. We live in the already, but not yet. John the Baptist was executed, and that's a tragedy. But the kingdom of God is still advancing. Whenever someone follows the counsel of Jeremiah 29, verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the second thing I want to mention is that we're coming to the end of Christendom. The story began when Constantine became the emperor of Rome in 306 AD, and then he decided that he was going to follow Jesus Christ about 312 AD. Now, Constantine was the first emperor of Rome to say that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't know for sure if Constantine used his Christianity to unite Rome or was actually a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that God has that job description and not me, right? But Christianity ascended to a place of prominence when Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire. The history of the, the Western world has largely been shaped by what people call Christendom. Churches have been in favor. It's been good to be part of a church. But that seems to be coming to an end. And we're not sure when that started. You know, some point to the period after World War II or the 60s and their volatilities. Some people point to a later time, like around the year 2000. You know, to be sure, there are followers of Jesus in our society many of you, 
but the society seems to be moving forward in more of a post-Christian phase. Okay? Now, this may be a crisis to followers of Jesus Christ, but I think it's an opportunity. I think it's an opportunity to reclaim our vision. As followers of Jesus Christ, we talk about the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commission is in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this has become so comfortable for us. We know those words. But did you know that the words in Greek are actually active and ongoing? We are in every moment of our lives to be making disciples of Jesus Christ. We are in every moment of our lives to be immersing people in the love and mercy and justice of Jesus Christ. And yes, we're to baptize them as well. We are in every moment of our lives to be teaching people that, to obey everything that God has commanded us. The great commandment is found in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We love to talk about loving the Lord our God with our hearts, with our souls, and with our minds. And part of what attracted me to return to a Presbyterian form of expression was that ability to take seriously the heart, the soul, and the mind. But often we forget about loving our neighbor as ourselves. In the Greek, this means that the second command is of equal value to the first. Loving neighbor as self is of equal importance to loving God with heart, soul, and mind. And so the next thing I want to talk to you about is that this is an opportunity for us to serve our community. I mean, we, have a, we have an opportunity here at Good Shepherd to love our community well. I know that you do that already with many selflessly giving themselves to the community in acts of service. And we heard that from Joy with her mission uh, a minute today, right? I've long believed that we are full-time servants of Jesus Christ, regardless of our role. You know, when you're at work, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. When you're with your family, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. When you're with your neighbors, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. When you're at work, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. And in all the places you choose to hang out, whether, you know, like a gym or bike riding or whatever it is you do, you are a full-time servant of Jesus Christ. And so this is an opportunity for us to reach people in a new and different ways. And that might suggest that this congregation has an opportunity to reach out in some creative ways that maybe you haven't conceived before. Now, I want you to understand something. I'm not the missionary at Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church. You are. You are. You're the missionaries. You're the missionaries on the field. You understand the challenges you face. You understand the opportunities you have. You understand new ways in which you might want to serve others. You understand those things that you might want to let go that are no longer working. 
So when Jesus Christ calls someone, he bids them to come and die. When Christendom has come to an end, some churches may consider this a threat, but I consider it an opportunity to love and serve people, to serve our community, to live out the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. May you discover the next step of your ministry together. Let's pray. You know, God, I'm so very grateful for this opportunity to be here. Thank you so much for all that you are doing in this congregation and the ways that they have loved this community well. Lord, we, uh, we ponder uh, the, the end of Christendom and we wonder what, what comes next for us. But we believe that you've given us an opportunity to engage with others, to love and serve others, to walk with others in ways that we've not imagined before. So God, would you, would you allow us to become your servants? Would you fulfill in us the words of Jesus in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you allow us to become part of that? And we thank you for all that you've done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.